along to the RT Soccer Podcast. Raf Giallo here alongside James McMahon of RT Sport Online. You can listen to this podcast every week on RT.ie, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, or watch it on YouTube where you'll also find the timestamps for each episode if there's particular topics you want to skip ahead to. And uh, this week we're joined by Keith Tracy and Paul Corrie to talk about the League of Ireland, the upcoming FAI Cup semis, which will be live on RT1 and RT Player. Champions League with Man United and Galatasaray, which will be live on RT2 and RT Player on Tuesday, and some of the Irish abroad, including a good midweek for Andrew Moran last week in the Carabao Cup third round. And Jim, um, mm. welcome back to the podcast. It has oh, been a thank while. You. How are yeah. you keeping? I'm good, Raf. Yeah. Um, new month. So maybe it's a good way to start the month by uh, my uh, latest appearance on this podcast. But good. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's certainly plenty has happened since uh, I've been last on it. And Certainly plenty has happened over the weekend, obviously, with the League of Ireland and the stuff uh, at the Tottenham Stadium on Saturday evening and the VAR and then the sendings off and then the late goal and all that. And then um, it looks like the League of Ireland title race probably heading to, to where we think it's going to be heading. And down at the bottom, uh, it, it looks as maybe Cork are the ones who are going to be in that relegation playoff. But uh, also, we have two, I think, very intriguing cup semi-finals to look forward to next weekend as well. Yeah, so plenty to chat about there now. And uh, starting with the Premier Division on Friday, Bohemians beat Sligo Rovers 3-1. Cork City were beaten 1-0 at home to St. Pat's, who they meet again in the FAI Cup semi. So just a week apart between those games. And then Derry City, 6-0 winners over UCD. Dundalk won the Loud Derby 3-1 against Strada United. Shamrock Rovers then on the live RTE game. They beat Shelburne 1-0 with Graham Burke scoring the winner and then um, getting sent off. Now, um, you know, Paul, looking at the table um, as it stands, you know, they've a, they've a five-point gap after that. I mean, Shamrock Rovers, but it, does it feel over? I know Alan Cawley was saying it on the coverage and it, it kind of has that sense, as Jim said. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with, with Alan and Jim's comments in and around kind of the season being over. I think if you look even at the game on Friday night, Shells were very much in it for the first 45 minutes and that's kind of been the tale of the season whereby when Shamrock Rovers have had to step up a gear and when they've had to find a little bit more, they've been able to do that. And, you know, five points ahead with their remaining games to go, it's very hard to see them coughing up uh, that sort of lead when you think about the amount of experience they have of going on and, and kind of seeing seasons out from, from this point in, the number of titles they have around the dressing room and just the quality that they have to call upon. The fact that Jack Brown was back on the pitch the other night, Graham Burke popped up with a goal. They have so many players, particularly in that final third area, that come kind of clutch moments when you need somebody to step up. They ultimately do, and and they've just got so much experience, like I mentioned, to just see these types of situations out. The flip side of that, Raf, is when they have presented opportunities to the chase and pack, nobody's been able to to take a hold of, of those opportunities. So when you kind of marry the two together, it's very hard to see anybody but Shamrock Rovers coming out on top. And that could be vitally important when, when you see all the storylines surrounding the budget and, and the question marks around players' futures, managers' futures. It seems like they desperately need that Champions League money for next year's budget to tie down the important players to keep Stephen Bradley at the club and continue to build. They haven't really, I would say, gotten out of third gear this season, but it's it's ultimately been enough and you would be very, very surprised if it was to be any but Shamrock Rovers kind of seeing it out and, and winning this league title. Yeah, just on what Paul said there, Keith, just in terms of like Shamrock Rovers feeling like they're a little bit at a tipping point and obviously becoming champions and then uh, getting into the Champions League and being key for them. Does it kind of feel like there's a little bit of a, you know, there's going to be a shift even like next season, regardless of how um, this season happens? 
yeah, it feels a little bit that way, Raph. I think a lot of a lot of teams, the likes of Bowles, Pats, Derry will take a lot of confidence from this from this season. Derry, obviously, maybe you could say pushed the pushed the uh, Rovers last season, but not really. They ended up winning that at Canter again. They could have got involved in the race. Pats could have been better. But ultimately, they've lost too many games. I think they're up around nine and ten games each that they're losing. And I think if you look at Pats, Bowles, Dundalk, they're all a very similar level. You know, they're all capable of beating each other. And everybody's capable of beating Rovers on the day as well. But generally, you know, on paper, Rovers are that little bit better than everybody else. Their squad is, you know, far outweighs any, any uh, you know, on paper, it's head and shoulders above everybody's everybody's um, squad depth. So, look, I... I thought Shelbourne were really good. I thought the first half they, they were really, really good. Played a, a nice bit of football as well at times, you know, when when Rovers were sitting in the box and waiting for the ball to come in. They played a little football, a little bit of football with Harry Woods and uh, Coyle, Moylan as well, doing really well. So yeah, look, I, I think Rovers will be there to be got it. And like you're saying, I'm we're hearing rumors that Shelbourne are gonna be have a bit of investment as well next season, so they might be able to rival the likes of Shamrock Rovers financially. And, I, I, I welcome it. You know, I think that's the nature of the beast. This happens so many times. It just comes around. Somebody's financially backed and all of a sudden they're the big dogs in the league. And look at it. Like I say, it's the nature of the beast. Rovers have been cherry picking the best players coming back from England or the best players within the league. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to make it all a lot more exciting for us. So, look, although we mathematically it's not done yet, but Pats have to play dirty uh, Rovers and Bowers in the last six games. So, you would imagine that Pats to take four points there is a huge, huge ask. And again, it's disappointing for the neutral because it's looking like Shamrock Rovers are going to win it without being anywhere near their best. Yeah, and Paul, just in, ter- in regards to Graham Burke's performance, so obviously a well-taken goal, although I'd be interested to get your take on maybe the goalkeeping side of it as well because just the, the way that shot was taken and seemed to take an age before going in and then, of course, his um, second yellow as well uh, when he caught uh, Mark Coyle. The good, the bad, the ugly of Graham Burke in probably the space of 20 minutes. And Berkey hasn't changed since I knew him when he was a young lad down in Belleville. I mean, first and foremost, for, for the goal, he does so well, I think. Like, he picks up that pockets of space and Poom just fires one into him. And he has that ability to just manipulate the ball and find an inch of room where probably others wouldn't. The strike is is okay. I think it's it is one where Connor Kearns will reflect on and say that he absolutely should have got down to it. I'm not unsure kind of why he delayed his his dive so much because it, it just seemed by the time he got down it was too late and the ball had gone by him. But I think credit where credit's due to, to Berkey and and even the pass from Poom. There's not many players, Raf, within the league who would probably be able to kind of find themselves that half yard even to get the shot away. And he's popped up, I think, with some important goals. Even if you think back to the penalty against Derry, that was a pressure penalty that he made look very easy. And he seems to be one of those players that when the pressure comes upon, he's able to produce a moment. The sending off is is just unfortunately something that has kind of followed Graham for the last five, six, seven years while he's been at Rovers and he's picked up far too many red cards. The first yellow, he's just hanging on to the ball for far too long and probably playing in uh, a part of the pitch that Stephen Bradley doesn't even want to see him in, which is kind of just outside his 18-yard box, coughs up the ball and gives away a silly foul. And then really, you know, with Graham's experience of playing even within the international side and being around the League of Ireland for so long, you can't dive in like that and and leave your studs open. It was a definite uh, second yellow. I think maybe Glenn Cronin or, or some of the Shamrock Rovers bench didn't take too kindly for it, but it was an absolute stonewall second yellow. And unfortunately, it means that Graham will will miss a game with that suspension. But, you know, for, for Rovers, 
big moments, big players. Graham is certainly somebody who stepped up in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, now let's listen to Stephen Bradley because he was speaking after the match. Uh, Stephen, a lot of speculation in studio about what the message was at halftime and what the key to that second half performance was. What was the message? There was a few things off our press in the first half. We weren't moving in sync. Our, our spacing was a little bit off and as a result, they got a full hold at times. And then when we were in possession, um, we weren't uh, using the overload enough. We, we had really good overloads and we kept coming away from it and, and playing long balls. And, and uh, second half, we, we made the game much shorter in every aspect and, and controlled the second half. A really professional performance. And it feels, I know it's only three points, but even the way you celebrated it with your backroom staff, how big a win is that in the overall context of the running? Oh, we know it's really important. What is the four games left? Um, so we know it's really important. Shells don't give away many goals. So uh, we knew it would be a tricky one. Uh, so it's important three points. But it's the, the noise coming out of the dressing room. It's, it's important to celebrate these. But even talking to Lee a couple of minutes ago, I know the cliche is four cup finals still to go. Yeah, we, we've been here before. We know what's in front of us. But you do have to enjoy these nights because Dublin Derby's. I think our record this year in Dublin Derbys has been fantastic. So you have to enjoy these nights. And unfortunately, we have a long break now before the next game. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll review this and then move on quickly. How difficult is that to navigate the break? To be honest, I don't think we should have it. I think we should be playing Cork on Monday. I'm, I'm not sure why that hasn't been put in this Monday. In every other country, it would be. It's a really poor decision uh, from the league, in my point of view. Uh, but it is what it is. We have to get on with Appreciate your time. No problem. Thank you. All right, so that is Stephen Bradley there speaking to Damian Amara after the match. And just on that last point that he made, now it's not the first time he's been unhappy with the league in terms of fixtures. Usually it's when they're in Europe, as uh, occurred last season, there were a couple of times where he felt, um, you know, fixtures should have been kind of moved to help accommodate Shamrock Rovers. But Keith, just on this long break that they have, now there's an international break as well, which is part of it, but they don't play again until the 20th of October against Drada and then Cork the following Monday. Of course, Cork are playing in the Cup um, this uh, this weekend coming. Um, what do you make of that in terms of how the fixtures uh, were laid out? Do you think maybe uh, is he correct that maybe it should have, the the Cork game should have been moved to this Monday? Yeah, I think I'd like to see the Cork game this Monday. I don't see a reason why it shouldn't be played. You know, Saturday Sunday, I think is enough recovery when you're at this stage of the season. And I think they're just trying to you know obviously Cork are, are in the, the semi-finals of the cup, but I don't think that really comes into it. Monday then. Uh, the game is not until uh, Saturday. So I think there's enough recovery time for Cork, there's enough recovery time for Rovers. Yeah, I, I think Stephen Bradley is spot on. And it's not the first time he's had issues. Obviously, as you pointed out, wrap around Europe, they feel like they don't get a lot of a lot of help given the, the fixture list. And now when they actually want to play, they feel like they have legs, they feel like they can go. They've been sort of held on the leash a little bit. So I can understand why Stephen Bradley is annoyed with it. And I can't see why it's not happening, to be honest with you, right? Yeah, and in terms of the t- chasing pack, then Derry City trashing UCD, as I said, 6 0. But uh, Paul, I mean, Will Patchen's goal, I mean, a bit Cantona esque. So the one he scores uh, to make it 2 0. It was a great goal, but I'm still at the same time, I'm sure they're ruining the last couple of weeks as well, where they would have dropped points that would have kept them much closer. Yeah, I'm I'm sure after still looking back at that Sean McRovers game when they were 1 0 ahead and just thinking they should have shut up shop and try to see out that game, slow the game down, make it difficult and, and just frustrate Shamrock Rovers. And that will ultimately be the, their Achilles heel when it comes to, to chasing Shamrock Rovers. The game against UCD, I mean, the writing was on the wall. UCD very much down and out at this period of, of the season and Derry still pushing for that European spot. And going up there is not an easy place to go. I've, I've gone up with UCD before and I think we got beaten 7-1. And I mean, when you score early after five minutes through Danny Mullen, it becomes a very, very long night. And listen, Derry have players that can pull you apart in any given night. And that's not just UCD. 
you know, you, you touched on Patching's goal. I mean, throughout the season, they've had, you know, good team goals, unbelievable individual moments. And when you put it all together and when it falls together, they can be a really difficult team to play against. So there's no surprise that they went up there and, and they've, you know, battered UCD. I think it is important now just from a momentum point of view that they they finished the season on a good foot and they tried to close that gap even psychologically between themselves and Shamrock Rovers so that when it comes to the beginning of next year, they're ready to go. Um, you know, they've got a really good age profile when you look through the squad, I think. I think that's probably one advantage that they have over Shamrock Rovers. Shamrock Rovers a lot of players 30 and north, whereas if you look across Derry's team, they've probably got a bit more youth in that team to kind of balance out the likes of Michael Duffy and McElhenney, who have so much experience. So uh, I, I'm sure Rory's telling his players that. I'm sure they'll be disappointed overall with the fact that they're not involved in the FAI Cup and maybe didn't get close enough to Shamrock Rovers. But, you know, the professionalism they showed on Friday night is, I'm sure, something that he'll be echoing to his team that they need to finish the season strong. Yeah, and balls of a big cup game coming this weekend, uh, having to travel to Galway United, which is going to be a very tough, uh, tough task. But uh, they beat Sligo Dillon Park 3-1. And uh, Keith, it's a nice warm up for them as well. But looking at the goals, obviously, Afalabi will get the headlines because he scored a brace. But they seem to be really strong down the wings in, in that match. Yeah, Bowes are, are very strong down the wings and looking forward to the to the cup semi-final. I think Galway are really strong down the wings as well. And a, a quick overview view of that game with it, I would imagine that's going to be one and lost on the wings, who defense falls into the box better because Galway don't don't complicate the game too much. If you get it in a decent area, they will whip the ball in with some decent quality and they'll have some lads going to attack it and they'll they will ring the edge of the box. So you know, so much about the modern day press is about pressing and, and controlling the width of the eighteen yard box. If balls come out and just uh, get really compact the width of the 18 yard box, Galway will play around that press and put it into the box, and it'll be really difficult for Bowles to get around and stop that. So I think it'll be a, a really good game, Raph. I think Bowles have been good for me this season. They came to, they came to into car early on in the season. I was really, really impressed with the with the way they played, the especially the front lads. I was really impressed with Ali Q. But I think the one word for me is with, with Bowles would be consistency. As it, as it would be where everybody, even Shamrock Rovers, to a certain degree, consistency hasn't really been there. But with Shamrock Rovers, when they play badly, they still draw the game. They still win the game. When Bowles play badly, they lose the game. When Pats play badly, they lose the game. And that's that's the one thing. I know it's an old cliche, but the champions are doing what champions are, are supposed to do when they're not getting beat when they don't play well. And I think that's just something that the likes of Pats and Bowles and, and Dundalk and Derry they just need to get hard at the beat. I know they have all the talent in the world. They can lift teams apart. They can beat Rovers on that day. But when they when they turn up on a Friday night and it's not quite clicking, it's the pitch is a bit muddy or it's windy and it's raining, can they just dig out a result there somewhere? Largely this season, they haven't been able to. And, and that is the difference. But really impressed with Bowles this season. And again, don't want to write off this season just yet. But I'm, I'm sure Bowles will be thinking next season, we must be licking our lips and thinking, if we can all get a decent pre-season, get on the same hymn sheet and really go and attack Rovers. Yeah, we'll, we'll come back to the Cup uh, very shortly. Obviously, two two big games are going to be live on RT1 and the RT player. But Jim, just on Sligo Rovers, um, you know, the, the defeat at Bowes, obviously it's a little setback, but the last couple of weeks before that were obviously beneficial in terms of picking up points and giving them a little bit of security, yeah. with especially with Cork City dropping points. But what is the mood in Sligo in and around 
what's happening um, with the club. I think, <clears throat> I think it would be fair to say, Raph, it's been a hugely disappointing season for Sligo. I mean, looking back on it, I think their best performance of the season was a 2-1 defeat against Shamrock Overs and Tala back in May. There really wasn't much lift up. I know they had, there were a lot of injuries back around the late spring, early summertime. Okay, they sold Max Mata. They sold McGinty. He's only gone out on loan to Wrexham with the option of buying him back. But there was, but there was no kind of lift off. I mean, there was one month there. I think it was the month of August. They didn't score any goals at all. You know, it's, it's just that they they've managed to have that buffer. They've managed to have that buffer over Cork uh, for the last couple of months. So there was no danger. Like people were asking me, what about John Russell? Is is his job under threat? I personally never thought it was or and, and I don't think the board uh, had the appetite to get rid of him so John will be in place until the end of the season um, but just looking ahead next season for Sligo I'm, I'm just thinking to the Premier Division next season like we won't have a team like UCD down at the bottom so there'll, there'll be no one team that is safe yeah that's the team that's going down I think with Galway coming up with possibly the likes of Waterford with the likes of Cove coming up it's going to be even more competitive down that bottom sort of from the last four or five teams down next season so Sligo you know they're obviously John if he's still there are just going to have to get it together uh, a bit more next season uh, I think they're going to have to get somebody up front a decent number nine that can score goals for them next season because that's one of the things that's been so disappointing is their threat in front of goal all season hasn't been good and overall since they won the cup back in they won the league back in 12 and then they won the couple of cups maybe last season getting that run in the conference league in Europe and beating beating Motherwell it's by and large it's been an up and down the last four or five years for Sligo Rovers which is quite disappointing and this season has been disappointing and there's no two ways about it yeah I think uh, the same sentiment would be there in Dundalk Paul I mean but the you know we were we were talking about them last week um before the before the loud derby and just the mood around Dundalk based on the the trashing that they suffered uh, at Galway United in the Cup and then some of the other results in the league and how they'd kind of slipped down into mid-table and out of European contention, that there, there were sort of issues there. But they have bounced back last couple of games now and capped by coming from behind to beat Drada United 3-1. Yeah, and even just kind of looking back on the goals, it's it's much more of what you would expect from a Dundalk team and maybe a Dundalk of old, whereby... You know, when they're at it, their fullbacks are high, they're, you know, overlapping wingers, they're really dangerous in the final third and the home crowd seem to get up against you and it, it becomes a really difficult place to go. I think for far too many or on far too many occasions this year, they've been a really soft touch and, and that is testament to their results against Galway and, and Pats and, and kind of going on really bad runs of form. But Friday night was much more like it. I think even when you look at the goals, Daniel Kelly's won overlapping fullback ball into the box. And if you look at the amount of numbers that they have in there, they're causing a threat. You've obviously got Pat Huben at the top end of the pitch. When you supply him with chances, he will ultimately cough up goals. But I thought there was just a bit more intensity and aggression in their play. And that has probably been something that's been missing on, on too many occasions this year round. And look, Raph, if, if if you look at the Premier Division table and the games that are still left to play, a lot of those teams in and around kind of second to sixth have to play one another. And if Dundalk were to put a run of form together, you would imagine they would probably need to pick up 10 of, of 12 points that are remaining. That could be enough to just see them into fourth place. Have they shown any signs of, of putting a run like that together? Not really. But in the last two games, at least, 
uh, the, the performance against Cork at home followed up by the performance against Drogheda. They've shown a bit more appetite and maybe the result against Galway was, you know, a bit of a reset that they needed to have amongst the squad. Um, it's been a very, very disappointing season, but maybe, just maybe, they might be able to salvage something from it. No real major indicators say that they will, but if they could just find a bit of form, click the right people into gear, there's a little bit of hope there that they might be able to grasp onto that fourth spot. Yeah, meanwhile, Pats and Will kind of turn our attention to the cup very, very shortly. Obviously, they've uh, they warmed up for the same um fixture, winning at Turner's Cross, as they will be. Uh, you know, they'll be playing Cork again in the the semi final this, um, this Sunday. But uh, before we kind of touch on how those teams match up again, Keith, I mean the the red card for or the second yellow, I mean for John uh, John O'Donovan, uh, Cork City's John O'Donovan before Pats get their goal. What did you make of it? Because it looked a little bit um, seems like he got the ball actually, but it seemed a little bit harsh. Yeah, it, it was an absolute joker. I have to be honest with you. When I first seen, I thought that's it. It's free kick to Cork, and the referee's gone the total three sixty and give a free kick to Pats on the yellow card. Uh, total, totally, totally wrong decision. Um, the first yellow card, yet yeah, no problem. Second yellow card, ridiculous decision. Um, how the referees come to that conclusion, I don't know. Uh, but look, I, I do think the game hinged on that pass with a better team with ten, with eleven men each. They were the better, the better team when Cork went down to ten men. But I think Cork would take a, a little bit of confidence out of that thinking we restricted pass to largely nothing. The goal, the Mark Doyle header is a lovely goal. It's a great ball in the right wing. Mark Doyle just steals the mark on the fullback, goes in, and it's a lovely little header. But from open play, I think Pat's had two shots on target with, with up against 10 men. It's not usually encouraging, but I do think Pat's are sorted in their heads now. This is not something we picked up from being around the club whatsoever, but I just think maybe all their eggs are in the one basket now. They're in a great place in terms of the table, in terms of making Europe. But they, I think they want a bit of silverware. I think they want to win the FAI Cup. So the, the, the focus has obviously shifted now to, to uh, Sunday in Cork. It's going to be a huge game. I wouldn't read too much into, into the game that's just passed, Raph. I think, the, as I said, I think the game sort of hinged on the red card. Pats were slightly the better team. But I think we'll, th- we'll see two different animals now on Saturday going at each other. Yeah, and Paul, I mean, they're coming into this, uh, I mean, Cork City coming into this run-in uh, in terms of trying to at least salvage uh, this chance, potential and uh, increasingly slim chance of avoiding the relegation playoff spot and then trying to get into an FAI Cup final with some changes behind the scenes. So um, Liam Buckley, who was combining the uh, the head coach role with the sporting director role, he's just going to now stick to being sporting director and the, the owner, Dermot Usher, said Liam brings a lot to the club, but we are conscious that results have not been what we need in recent games following internal discussions we feel it's best to make this change now as we go into the last six games of the season uh, what do you make of that move I think it's probably the right move Raf. last time I was on I think I was saying that you know it was a little unpredictable from a court point of view particularly you know for the players trying to understand who was going to take charge and Liam was obviously brought in to, to you know take over a specific role that ultimately he wasn't able to do because he was in charge of first team matter so I think it makes sense to make the change um, listen, Sligo have pulled away, so they they need to best prepare themselves now for whatever playoff is going to come their way, and between now and the end of the season, find a system, get back to basics, and try become a very difficult side to beat because whoever they do face from the first division will be coming up with a bit of momentum, whereas Cork in the last couple of weeks have stalled a bit. The results that they were finding kind of four or five weeks ago have dried up, and they're leaking a lot of goals. Uh, I think kind of come the weekend in the FAI Cup. 
uh, it's very hard when you're not in form and when you're not kind of finding consistency in your performances to then, you know, switch it up and find that. Uh, obviously, the home crowd will be behind them on the weekend and it'll be a difficult place to go for St. Pat's, but I do find it very difficult to see how Cork, who haven't beaten Pat's this year, beat a Pat's team who are probably in a little bit more form. The one thing that's going to be very interesting, I think, is is particularly from a St. Pat's point of view is the number of young players in this squad is is incredible. You know, they put out a tweet there saying that seven of the players who were involved last Friday were eligible for the 19s and three who could still play for the under-17s. How do they deal with an occasion of this magnitude will, will be interesting to see. Do they kind of, you know, shriek under, under the pressure or are they able to express themselves and play with maybe a bit of innocence of youth and, and get themselves over the line? But I think it's going to be a tricky fixture for Pats. But at the same time, I feel like it's one whereby... They've shown enough throughout the season. I think they've got enough firepower at the top end of the pitch. If you could get somebody like Chris Forrester to dictate the game, Turner's Cross is not an easy place to go, but I think they'll just about have enough to get over the line. Yeah, that second semi-final, of course, it is live on RT1 and RT Player with live coverage from half two on Sunday. And Keith, just just on that, um, in terms of in terms of Pats, uh, well, and, and I suppose Cork as well. So Cork have that interesting dynamic and where they're struggling in the league. But I don't know, does a cup semi-final as an occasion itself, is that a, like a good distraction or do league issues kind of creep in? And then for for Pats as well, I mean, of course, as, as Paul is saying there, the likes of Chris Forrester are probably going to be key to carry those kind of less experienced players alongside him. Yeah, I think, um, I don't think Cork, I think you have to be realistic because obviously, you know, a lot of noise around this situation of Cork being in the, the relegation playoff, but <laughs> you have to be realistic and to be realistic, you would have thought Cork would have been in the mixture for that. They haven't, uh, usually they're obviously going down automatically. Cork might go into the relegation playoff. It's not the best place in the world to be, but, you know, they're not going to, they're not going to get Sligo. They're going to be in there. So, I would have assumed that this would have been something they spoke about at the start of the season. We may be in the relegation playoff. I don't think they obviously expected to get to the FAI Cup semi-final. So for me, they're bang on track in the league. They're, they're not going straight down. So that's success number one. Can they stay up through the playoffs? That would be success number two. And if they can somehow go and get their fans to the Aviva, I think it's been a brilliant season. And, you know, people say you can't, you can't say it's a brilliant season when you're, when you're playing in relegation. You know, be realistic. It's the fourth season. And let's be a Rory Keane's been absolutely outstanding this season. The amount of goals he scored, kept them in games, won them games. And look, I, I don't think it's going to be... I, I, I'd be very similar to what Paul is saying. I do think Pats might just have a little bit too much for them. But if I was to, to find out that Cork was to win the game on Sunday, I wouldn't be too surprised because, like I said, I think it's going to be a lot of blood, sweat, thunder, tears. And there's a lot of young players in that Pats team. You know, they'll be going into the melting pot, how they deal with it. It's, there's still question marks over a lot of these boys. So, for a lot of these boys, it's the biggest ever game I've had. You know, they like to they say we're still young. So, you know, it's it's going to be seen as win time, and we'll see how they how they deal with it down there. Yeah, and then the other game, um, the day before on the Saturday, same kickoff time, twenty to three, and coverage on RT one and the RT player from half two each day. So that's of course Galway United against Bohemians and, uh, Paul. Like looking at it, obviously it's a testament to Galway United and the way they've played this season under Caulfield that this one is hard to call when they're coming up against a Premier Division side that's actually been playing quite well across the season. Well, everybody stood up and took notice after the quarter final performance against Dundalk, and I wonder. Will that performance and that result maybe just 
ensure that Bowes, you know, don't arrive up to Galway thinking that they're already in a FAI Cup final. Maybe they will have learned the lesson that Dundalk failed to on, on the night. Um, I would have to fancy Bowes. Just, I think, like Keith mentioned earlier on in, in the podcast, that they've been good in recent weeks. They've been particularly good at Dalyman Park, not being fantastic on their travels and picking up points in the league. But I think when you've got somebody like Jonathan Afalabi at the top end of the pitch in such good form, you saw the impact that Dylan Connolly had um, on, on Friday night. Ali Coote looks like he's picked up a bit of form and the relationship then between Clark and Afalabi has been superb in the last couple of months. They're so dangerous on transitions. They've got so much pace in the final third. I think they could hurt Galway on in those moments and um, potentially... If you can feed Afalabi, he could be enough to kind of get you over the line. That said, you know, we're talking about Cork and maybe struggling for a bit of form and a bit of momentum. <laughs> the opposite is true when it comes to Galway. Everything is is behind that side. And I imagine come uh, Saturday that the home crowd will absolutely be roaring Galway over the line. They'll make it difficult. They'll be in Bo's face. It won't be an easy fixture where you're going to have loads of time to put your foot in the ball. I can imagine this one will be a hectic semi-final. And it's just one for you. Which he, whichever side maybe gets the first goal, gets them over the line. But I just think Bowes, Declan Devine, you know, much of, of what Keith said around Cork and being a successful season, you kind of say about Bowes. If Bowes to get European football and FAI Cup final, that'll be major progression. And the one thing that the fans in Daily Mount are desperate for is a bit of silverware. They had their European Cup run. They've had a lot of good younger players come in through the building and move them on. They haven't won anything in that period of time. And that is something that they will be itching for. And I think... I think this might be the year, Raph. I just look at them in the final third and I think there's there's a lot of quality there. Players coming into form, good kind of statistics, goal involvements with players in the final third. And that might be just enough to get them over the line on Saturday. Yeah, and if you're calling it in terms of who will be playing against each other on the 12th of November, who are you going for, Paul? I think it's very hard to look past Pats and Bows. I just think, you know, throughout the season, they've been pretty good. And I would imagine that they'll step up to both occasions. Yeah, and Keith, similarly, are you looking at a sort of repeat of the 2021 final then? I, I would be going for Galway and Pats. I, th- I just think, I know what Paul is saying about Bowes, uh, really, really good. But when you look at Galway's home form, 16 games, 116, only conceded four goals all season. I just think it's an absolute fortress down there. John Coffey will have them revved up and ready to go. And I just think they'll be ready to run through brick walls. Over the weekend, I think we're going to see an upset. And I think we're a lot more likely to see Galway beating Bowes than Coffey and Pats. So I'll go Galway and Pats in the final. Yeah, and Jim, uh, final call to you. I'd imagine, look, if Galway United were to do it, I mean, they haven't won a lot of silverware as a club. Um, no, I, it would be I, a great story if they were to get to a final and maybe push yeah, on further. I think you have to go back to 1991. I think it was Johnny Glenn scored the goal for Galway to beat Shamrock Rovers in the final at the Old Lansdowne Road 22 years. I might just uh, concur with what Keith said here. I, I think we'll be have, it'll be a Galway v Pats final on the 12th. And I think Galway will bring a big crowd to Dublin on that day. So Galway, Pats. But again, as Keith said, like I don't think you'd fall off the seat if Cork were to come through either. And you know, that could we could also have a Bowes Cork final. But uh, I'll go for Galway, Pats final on the 12th. Okay, we'll see. We'll see what happens after this weekend. So those games live on RT1 and the RT player Saturday and Sunday. Of course, the first one, it's Galway United against Bowes. 20 to 3 kickoff and then Cork against Pats the following day. Uh, again, same time, 22 3 on the Sunday. Now, in the first division, Finn Harps beat Kerry 2 1. Galway United uh, continued their good form and warmed up for that cup semi final with a 6 0 win over Athlone Town, have been decent this season. Waterford and Wexford drew nil all. 
uh, Bray Wanderers beat Cove Ramblers 2-1 and then on Saturday Treaty United defeated Longford Town 3-2 away from home and what it does to the table obviously Galway are safe home in terms of promotion Waterford are 20 points behind them and then the rest of the promotion battle here Paul I mean Cove on 54 Wexford on 49 Athlone on 46 they're occupying the last places but that Treaty United win puts them just within five of Athlone Town and with with there are games running out, so it's going to be a hard task for Treaty. But if Athlone, I guess, get another win or so, then I think we're pretty much locked into what the playoffs are going to look like. Yeah, absolutely. And once you you get to that playoff situation, no different to what you see over in kind of the English leagues, it's an absolute lucky dip. And maybe the team who's bringing form into it, you know, Cove being particularly good in the last couple of weeks, they might be the team that kind of cause a bit of an upset and spring a surprise. A lot of people be looking at Waterford and, and the season they've had. Only Galway's been so good. It might have been a little bit of a tighter race at the top end of the division. But you're always looking, I think, at this stage of the season, who's carrying momentum and who are the team in form? Because that ultimately kind of lends itself to a bit more confidence, a bit more belief within the camp. But I'd be very surprised, Raph, if, if Athlone were to kind of cough up that five-point advantage from here. I'm sure a lot of people in that Athlone camp will just be saying, you know, don't lose games. Ensure you get points and f- find yourself in that fifth position come the playoffs. But it's one that we will we will be keen to look and see how it progresses, particularly when it gets to that playoff stage and we start looking at who might be the team to come up against Cork. But whoever it is, it will be a right thing of a game. Yeah, and then in the women's Premier Division over the weekend, now the weather saw the games between Cork City and at Lone Town, Treaty United and Galway United and Wexford Youths v Shamrock Rovers all postponed. But the two games that did go ahead, Sligo Rovers beat Bowles 4-1 and then Shelburne were 2-0 winners away at DLR Waves. And as the table looks now, P-Mount are top on 43, Shelburne on 37, Shamrock Rovers on 34. And then there's Galway and Bowles 29, 27 and Wexford just behind them on 26. And at Lone Town, who are runners up in both competitions, the Cup and the League last season uh, seventh place at the moment on 22 now uh, in terms of the uh, women's international scene so Katie McCabe has signed a new deal uh, at Arsenal and then Megan Campbell good, great news for her joining Everton as well but um, Jim I suppose the last couple of games so the 3-0 win over Northern Ireland which was of course a historic occasion yeah. in the Nations League opener uh, Aviva Stadium big crowd there and then mm. going over to Hungary then and winning 4-0 the mood music is changing slightly in terms of well at well, changing drastically. Obviously, there's been a change from Vera Pau. Eileen Gleeson is still yeah. the interim manager um, for now. But in terms of the the mood around the camp, it has taken away a little bit of that. Um, I suppose whatever sour notes were there for that for the moment. Yeah, and I suppose that there were like when you look back on it, since the team did qualify for the World Cup, there's like there's been controversies with the you know the singing in the dressing room, and then the Vera Pau, her time at Houston Dash, and then stuff between Vera Pau and Katie over at the World Cup. But now look, that's you know you have, that's in the past, that's over. What we're looking at here, Raf, is probably the distinct possibility that Ireland are probably going to top their group here in the Nations League. So, you know, I mean, and even like this, to, to get six wins on the trot between between now and Christmas would be a huge boost heading into the qualifiers next year for the Euros 2025. So certainly there's, there's talk. I, I, you could also get the sense that they're trying to play something a bit more expansive in the type of football that are playing, that they are 
playing as well. Uh, I, I would counter the fact as well, Rafa, that maybe the quality of the opposition, I, I thought the North were, you know, maybe apart from maybe a 10-minute spell in the second half, were quite poor. So too were hungry. So maybe you have to take that into account. But winning is a habit. And uh, I think I think they can have a really positive end to the year, uh, you know, with, with getting six wins on the bounce. Yeah, and let's listen to Denise O'Sullivan, who was speaking after the game, uh, after the Hungary game uh, in Budapest, which was, of course, a 4-0 win, and she capped off a brilliant personal performance by scoring uh, the fourth goal. The aim, obviously, tonight was to build on the win over Northern Ireland, and certainly that proved to be the case. Yeah, definitely. Look, it was very positive tonight. Um, we are trying new things, um, different style of play, and look, there's loads of positives out there, and it just shows the team is coming together, and I think we're really enjoying the football right now, and four different goal scorers um, Caitlin's first goal tonight so um, a lot of positives to take away What about your own goal? Yeah look I, I really wanted to get a goal that's my job I'm playing at number 10 so I want to assist I want to score goals so um, to get off the mark tonight was nice but it was a team effort um, everyone put in a great shift and we're going away with three points six points top the table but it's a long journey ahead so we'll just keep going How important was it to start this campaign so positively? Yeah it was huge look um, coming off the back of the World Cup um, we needed to get off to a good start and just get back together again. And um, as I said, we're, we're trying a new style of play. A lot of things have changed. And look, uh, the girls have been absolutely fantastic. We've all came together. We've rallied around each other. And um, as I said, six points um, and we're walking away with that. So that's good. And clearly the new style of play is working. Yeah, look, it's working so far, but I think we have a lot to improve on as a team. Um, we have some quality players and we only want to keep getting better and better. That's the, that's the attitude of this team. So happy with with the performance but we still have a lot to improve on we'll play tonight thank you cheers all right so that ireland midfielder denise sullivan uh, playmaker scored the fourth goal and also player of the match against hungary and that was the second uh, uefa women's nations league fixture and then there's more to come in october and november and uh, paul just on just on ireland's performance over those that those span uh, two games and i think the interesting thing denise sullivan said there was the idea of trying new things which i think is a sort of reflection of maybe where they had been at before and um, before this this last window um Obviously, as Jim said, there's a note of caution. You have to take the opposition into account. But at the same time, what's your kind of take, overall take on, I suppose, the sense of change or positivity that's there now? Yeah, there was an element of change, Raph. I wouldn't say it was drastically different than what we were maybe doing under Vera. You would say that there was times within both games where we moved the ball probably a bit better and we we made the pitch bigger and we tried to play out, particularly through our three centre-halves. Um. I think what was most important about that window was the performances and the results because there were so many eyes on this team based on what had been said, particularly after Diane Caldwell's interview and the remarks that she made about Vera and her setup. So I think the performance and the results were very important. It was probably 20, 30 minutes within the Northern Ireland game when we were looked a little edgy and a little nervy, and that was probably understandable given the occasion at, at Lansdowne Road. But as we grew into the game, we, we started to find a bit more accuracy in our passing, a bit more tempo in our passing. And that it was maybe something that we didn't see a huge amount of under Vera. And we got Denise on the ball and we got Katie on the ball and probably more dangerous areas. But to Jim's point, you, you have to take the opposition into consideration. We were far and away, you know, miles better. We were much better players than, than both teams. And really, you know, the Nations League will be your kind of testing ground to try new things out and to try these new styles of play with whoever, whoever takes mantle of the women's team to then play against better oppositions. But this campaign, 
I think will be very beneficial because it does allow you that time to try things out and it will give you a really good opportunity if you're to top the group to get that playoff against a lesser nation to then qualify for another major tournament. So it, it was a very positive week for the side. Um, I thought there was a couple of really good performances. Caitlin Hayes, who came in, was superb playing out from the back and that's maybe not something that we've had. And then Tyler Toland in the middle of the park looked very, very assured with regards to kind of moving the ball through the thirds. And then Caruso, the top end of the pitch, was was excellent in both games. So a number of positive indicators, but it's one that you probably don't want to get too carried away until we play better opposition, better players, and then we start to see whether or not the fruits of this new style of play is going to, is going to work or whether or not we need to find a balance between the two. Yeah, and positive indicators, um, I think, would be very apt in regards to Andrew Moore and so the Ireland Under-21 international who has come through at Brighton. Of course, he joined them from Bray Wanderers a few years ago, but he he got a couple of first-team cameos for, for Brighton, but now on loan at Blackburn Rovers and really caught the headlines last week with a couple of goals, Keith, um, in the Carabao Cup, and this was against Cardiff. And it was a couple of different types of goals. One came from kind of pressing and an error from Cardiff, but the second goal was uh, that he scored on the night was uh, really impressive. Obviously, Callum Robinson scored on the night as well, which shouldn't be forgotten uh, for Cardiff. But um, what you make of more, and I know a couple of weeks ago we were talking about like the club being a great environment for him having had your own time there and uh, you know the the back room there will be brilliant for him but him as a player what have you what have you made of his uh, start to the season yeah it looks looks really good Raph I've seen him playing against Cardiff and like you say the the first goal when he goes and wins the ball is really encouraging because you need to see that from younger players the desire to run around and, and want to win the ball does that really really well his second goal is a great strike with his right foot as well a little bit of distance involved and that so he's a good smack of a ball as well and two assists on the night as well. I'm not sure if he's fourth or second. I can't quite remember. It's not coming to mind. But he just comes in off the, off the right wing. He's quite central. Gets it onto his right foot. Plays a lovely little weighted pass to the overlap and fullback. He crosses it and they end up going and scoring. And it's all about the weighted pass. To have that pass appreciation at that age. But, you know, it, it did surprise me a little bit. But then when you look at that, he's, he's been under the Zerdy, the underground part. Obviously, now at Blackburn Rovers, under Yandar Thomason as well. So, there's just so many great minds, great football and minds. Obviously, the Zerbi tactician, really, really good. And yeah, he's, he looks to be going strength to strength. Um, Blackburn didn't do too well. You don't know he against Leicester. He was quite largely anonymous, but Blackburn were poor on the night as well. So look, a lot of encouragement coming from from uh, from young Moran. I like what I'm seeing. He's probably still a little bit raw. You know, people obviously, whenever somebody does well across the world, they can't get him into the Irish team. I think that's probably a little bit premature. Mm-hmm. The, the early signs are really, really good. And it's hard not to get excited about these lads when we're, when we're looking for players who can play on the half and play those little balls, score a goal, run around, give us all that, all that want and, and desire. He looks to have it all. But, you know, it's a, we don't want another... It's probably a little bit disrespectful. I was going to say we don't want another Aaron Conley, but we don't want another star like Aaron Conley. When he burst onto the scene, he threw all this weight on his shoulders and obviously he's starting to rebuild himself now. So the last thing he wants to do is to all this media hype behind more than and then all of a sudden he falls off the wagon or maybe the, the performance go a little bit down and he feels like he's starting to fail. That's not the that's not the case here. He's a young lad, he's doing really, really well. First impressions are really good. 
let's give him a little bit more time and see how he does. Yeah, next is Jan Dahl, Thomason said, uh, his Blackburn manager, um, and this was after the uh, after the Cardiff game. He's a young boy, young man who's also very driven. He wants to become better. He's very ambitious. So we're very pleased with Andy and uh, Paul. Like looking at him, I'm like I watched. Um, I made a point of looking at the Leicester game just to watch him, and obviously someone we're going to talk about very shortly as well, Sam Smodix as well. But um, the Ireland under twenty ones, the the game against Turkey was brilliant, scored a great goal, but. Then afterwards against San Marino, which I think was, there was a lot of expectation in that game to go on and get a lot of goals. But Ireland were a little bit disjointed in that game and more in, um, uh, among them as well. And um, Jim Crawford made a point, I think, coming over to him at a uh, full time just to give him a little bit of a word of his, in his ear of encouragement. Because I think it was been it had been a little bit of a frustrating night for him. But looking at him as a player, he... He picks up very interesting positions. I thought, like, against Leicester, it seemed he was supposed to be lying up on the left. But you see him kind of popping in, kind of into the hole in the middle, then drifting out wide a little bit. Like, he's got a he's got a lot to his game. He does, and he's one of those players that will probably tend to drift and just find pockets of space wherever he feels he can get one. And, I mean, I thought he showed quite a bit in that Turkey game in particular that, you know, he's got elements of quality and, and his goal is not something that you see every week, nor something that many players were able to execute on. So his his technical ability is certainly there. But I, I think to your point around the fact that maybe there was a bit of a drop-off in the San Marino game, what you find with younger players is that they tend to be a little more inconsistent. And the only way of kind of eliminate that, eliminating that inconsistency is by getting minutes under your belt. So that's why it's so important that he's he's gone out to Blackburn and that he finds a really good environment, like Keith has said, similar to that of a Brighton, whereby he can get minutes and he can start to learn the game and maybe eradicate some of those inconsistencies out of his game. But he's got he's got a lot, Raph. He's got that low centre gravity. He looks so comfortable on the ball. He can thread a pass, he can score a goal. And that's really kind of the the box ticking that you want to do when you're looking for somebody who's going to play in that final third. You want goals, you want goal involvements. And one thing that you can certainly be sure is that there's going to be a tenacity and aggression in his play when they haven't got the ball because he would not be so highly thought of at Brighton if he didn't have that in his game. That is an absolute minimum when you play in that Brighton side and you see that with all the players that they have. So it will be it'll be one that you just want to track. Like he said, you don't want to heap a huge amount of expectation and pressure on this young man's shoulders, but he certainly has the game. He's got the technical ability to play, particularly at the championship level where he is right now. And it's about minutes and it's about trying to get as many minutes into his legs and into his mind to learn the game a little more. And then the more he does, I'm sure you'll see this guy kind of taking a step up to the next level. But it is important that we kind of just give him space to one, make mistakes, but also two, to express themselves. And it'll be an interesting journey, one that will be certainly keen to track particularly because we we don't have a huge amount of depth within that area. Yeah, and then the other one to that I think people if they're looking at Blackburn to look out for is Sam Smodix, Keith. And uh, of course, he's he's eligible for Ireland. I think he he had been called up a couple of years ago by um, by Stephen Kenny for the for the sort of Spain training camp that led into the the Andorra game and then Hungary, but picked up an injury, pulled out of that. But it only seems his international clearance was really sorted this March. Um, playing as a false nine yesterday against Leicester, scored a goal and has been in really good goal scoring form this season in that position. Like what? For player for people who haven't really seen too much of him, what type of player is he? He's he's an attacking midfielder, uh, Raph, really good player. As you say, he can can play in the false nine. But the one thing I like about about Smodix, and sometimes it can be quite a, a general thing to say, but and Paul will know this being a defender. If you go if you go and stand in the centre forward position, you're very easily marked. 
what he does is he arrives late in, in areas and he's not picked up and that's what he's good at. And it, you can say that and say that's a really oversimplification, but if you were if you were arriving late rather than standing there, it's so much harder to be marked. And yeah, he's been really good. Twenty eight years old, so you know, he, he's not a young lad coming you. This is probably the first time a lot of people are hearing his name, but he was at Bristol City at Peterborough, got the move, uh, uh, a 1.8 million mill. Really enjoying, good finisher when he, when he gets the chance of arriving late at the edge of the box. Six goals and one assist in nine games in the championship. So, doing really well in this Blackburn team. And yeah, he can play for Ireland. And again, he's one that, look, if he's doing it at championship level, which he obviously is, and the, the stats are really good. Six goals and one assist in nine games. Why not put him into the Irish team? Like Paul has just said, we're absolutely crying out for, for this type of player. Andrew Moran's a little bit younger, you know. If, if he was to come into the Aviva and not play well, it could probably leave a little bit of a scar. With Smotherstein being 28, I don't think that's a real issue. He's been around the block. He's, he's played in the lower divisions. He, he will be tough to the, to the crowd. So I would be more inclined to put, put him in than, than an Andrew Moran. But again... Playing in the championship is is that the type of level that we want in, in our Irish team? Ideally, not, but it's a it's a it's a sign of the times of where we're at that that we're looking at these type of players and this is what we need in the team. We need people who can play on the half turn, keep the ball, and arrive with goals for us. Yeah, and then elsewhere, and this is uh, further on the continent, Jim, and I guess, uh, you know, there, we've had a period maybe where we didn't have so many players going towards the continent the last few mm-hmm. years. There has been a bit of a change, but Jake O'Brien maybe didn't uh, maybe didn't quite get headlines over here, but he made his debut for Leon on Saturday. Now, yeah. they're actually, they're not, a, Leon like, would be, you know, shining lights in France normally, but they're sitting bottom of League League One at the yeah. moment. Um, and uh, I think he's the first Irishman to play in that league since Cass Carino um at Nancy in 2000 so that's a bit of a bit of a way yeah, yeah. Um, you know what I mean yeah like I mean we like in in fairness Raph, we, we we've had a good sprinkling of players that, that have gone over to the you know that are playing on the continent and of course if you if you look at the likes of uh say for example um Irish midfielder now at Burnley like I mean the fact that he started out at Anderlecht yeah, you know Colin, what I mean? yeah, yeah. sorry Josh Cullen you know what I mean so like I mean so you know that the normal avenue where you think it's England Scotland like I mean there are obviously Brexit has has a bearing on it as well but there are other other leagues to explore as well and some Irish uh, players are exploring those leagues, you know. Yeah, so. and one of them, of course, another one, Troy Parrott. Uh, Paul, yeah. I mean, I was looking. At, I'd seen his goal last week, um, that he that he that he scored uh, against Heerenveen in the in the Dutch league, and I was obviously on loan there from from Spurs. But then he's followed it up again with uh, another well taken goal against uh, Sparta. So this is for Excelsior, and this is one of the Rotterdam derbies. It's uh, they happen to be the only I think Dutch city where there's like three clubs that play at the at the highest level. So there isn't one Rotterdam derby. I think Feyenoord <laughs> will be the one to uh, Feyenoord gener- it'll be Feyenoord against one of the others are generally regarded as the Rotterdam derby but it's been a good move for him so far it seems at least he needs I think he's he seems to be somebody who needs that confidence and maybe getting away from England for a while and trying out a really technical league like that seems to be a, a positive move for him I think getting him out of out of the UK was probably the right decision and getting him out of the limelight and, and maybe just going somewhere where he can express himself a bit more. I thought he took his goal really well, Raf. I think he got himself into the position even better. And listen, nobody will really question Troy's natural ability uh, uh, on a football pitch. He's He's got a lot. I saw a lot of him at Belvedere and I saw a good bit of him at Tottenham as well. And he has so much to his game that it's just taken him a bit more time now to adjust into kind of the senior men's setup 
and adjusting to maybe the physicality of the game. But I think the move to to Holland is as been a wise one to be honest with you I think just like I mentioned getting out of London getting out of the UK didn't really work out from and any of the low moves that he had and and this one seems like it'll be a good fit if you think about particularly the style of football that they tend to play in top or in, in Holland it tends to be very technical it's on the ground and if uh, you know it worked out very well for Jack Byrne Troy's probably not too dissimilar in, in the way that he wants to play the game so it's great to see him back on the score sheet it's, it's great to just see him playing games so important at that period of your career that you play as many games as you possibly can. And this seems like a really good opportunity for him. And if he was to find a couple more goals, you know, there, there could be a couple of teams lined up who might take a ch- uh, a chance on Troy if he was maybe to, you know, dip back into the championship and and become the out-and-out number nine. That would be really good for him. But it's it's about probably getting back to enjoying his football, scoring goals. And on the basis of the last two weeks, it certainly seems like he's heading that way. Yeah, for sure. Now, uh, staying with Europe, and of course, we've got Champions League coverage on RT2 and the RT Player on Tuesday, 7.30pm, and the game is Manchester United against Galatasaray, and um, I suppose going into this for Man United, Jim, they just, they every time they get a little, a slight upturn, then there's like bad news that follows it, and of course, at the weekend, it was a, a defeat at Crystal Palace, where it just kind of showed up the fact that they, they do have issues going forward. Yeah, I think they've had issues for a while, Raf. I mean, I think uh, the players or the hmm. purchase of certain players at the club and the cash that's been spent on those players has been questionable over the last couple of years. And I, I also believe the Old Trafford ground as well is in need of repair. And to be honest with you, apart from, you know, winning a couple of cups over the course of the season, as as they did last season and, and as they did under Jose, uh, like it's been really like the, the last decade ever since Alex Ferguson has left. There's been signs that yeah they're they're going in the right direction, and and then there's a kind of a pullback or there's a bit of a drawback, and there's a couple of setbacks. And last Saturday was another example. After you know they beat Palace comfortably. Okay, Palace had a much changed team during the week, but Palace scored early on, and the resistance or the effort that was summoned by Manu afterwards wasn't wasn't particularly good and it was no wonder that they were booed off um, at the end and the way the Premier League is this season, uh, Raf. I mean, it's going to be competitive up around the top. Okay, I mean, and there's a possibility that the top five will get into the Champions League next season because of the expansion of that competition to 36 teams. But there's no guarantee at the way things are going so far that Manu are going to be finishing uh, up possibly top five or top six. So. The game against Galatasaray is important for them in, in terms of getting out of the group, which you would think that Bayern are going to top that group and that Manu should finish second ahead of Copenhagen and Galatasaray. But who knows? Uh, I see that Anthony is back in the squad for tomorrow, but they've also got injuries. I think Lissandro Martinez is uh, injured as well. So they, they've got a couple of injuries to deal with. But overall, and in particular, their form at home has been has been very poor so far this season. And I think the longer it goes on, obviously, then you're going to have some pressure coming on uh, Eric Ten Hag. But I think the problems at Man U extend well beyond the Dutchman. Yeah, and Keith, uh, just on that as well, because it, it is a home game. And while United will be favourites against Galatasaray, who have 
quite a few um, interesting internationals, the likes of Wilf Zaha, Hakim Ziyech and Icardi as well. Um, Man United's problem seems to be they're a little bit out of sorts in attack. I mean, Bruno Fernandes takes on a lot of the mantle in terms of creativity, but Rashford seems to have made a relatively slow start to the season, barred the goal he scored against Arsenal. And then you look around and Rasmus Hoyland is a young player coming in and it's it's quite unsure how he's um, you know, how he's going to pan out in the short term. Yeah, I think you know you have been been lucky at times and been poor at other times this season. When you look at the the games they've already lost, obviously Spurs, Arsenal, and Brighton, and now Crystal Palace, and then you look at the Wolves game, which you are they were lucky not to be given a penalty against in the last minute when Onana comes out and smashes one of the one of the Wolves players, and they were two 0 down against Forest. And I think if that's anybody else in the league, that's from position sixty and up, you know you don't get back into that game. So. They have been lucky at times. The, the, the big thing for me is just the walk right off the ball. You know, so many players now think, oh, well, I'll turn around when I have the ball. The only player who has the God-given right to just turn around when he have the ball is Lionel Messi. Nobody else can do that. Nobody else has the right to do that. Nobody else has the amount of talent that Messi has to warrant being able to do that. So when the likes of Marcus Rashford decides he's not going to run back against Brighton, this, this can't happen. And Manchester United, you know, any captain over the years, would not let that happen. Bruno Fernandes is probably at the top of the fire for people who switch off when the game is thrown against them. So, for me, I, I don't see a leader in that dressing room. And that's a crazy thing to say when you think of the likes of Casemiro, uh, Champions League winner, Varane, World Cup winner, Champions League winner. But to be fair, Varane has made a glass. You can't make him your captain because he doesn't play enough games for you. <laughs> the midfield for you mm-hmm. is absolutely thrown together. When you look at the likes of Mason Mount, he's playing next to Casemiro. Mason Mount wants to go to the front of the pitch. He doesn't want to be. Sh- be looking over his shoulders and worrying about what's behind him. I think there's only one or two players in that United team that will actually try and get you the ball back. And at the minute, it's, it's just absolutely all over the place. And I, I feel a little bit sorry for Rasmus Hoyland because he's come in, he's, he's walking his socks off, he's been physical with people. He's had one cleared off the line the other day. He's trying his socks off, but Marcus Rashford, if you stood him next to Hoyland, I don't think you're getting anywhere near the same amount of walk rate. And slowly but surely, Sancho is unhappy, Maguire is unhappy, McTominay is unhappy. It just seems to me that there's more and more players becoming unhappy at Manchester United than actually happy at the minute. And I have to be honest, I see it getting worse before it gets better. They were outclassed by Brighton with a team where they, they go toe-to-toe playing football. So Brighton came to Old Trafford, played really open, expansive football, played United off the park. Crystal Palace can't play a totally different way. Low block, frustrated and played by set pieces and they win the game as well. It's just nowhere, nowhere near good enough at the minute. And I feel a little bit sorry for Ten Hag because a lot of the problems he's created himself, but a lot of them is just in the club's DNA at the minute. And it's going to be so hard to wrestle that club back into a forward momentum. Yeah, as you said, Ten Hag maybe create some issues from that. In terms of the, the Rashford thing, I think Rashford's argument is that he's been told to not track back and you know be ready for counterattacks and that. But if you're in Rashford's shoes, do you... Do you sort of and and that's coming from Ten Hag. Now, do you do you um do you track back anyway and try and try and help out even if the instruction is to kind of you know stay you know stay forward and be ready to go when the ball is won back? Yeah, look, I, I get that. I, I I've been given licenses like that, and you get in the game yourself where I say, look, if if it's certain points, you just let them go. But like the pass at Brighton, it was literally two yards to the side when he has a look and he goes, no. Like I I think when when Ten Hag is saying to Rashford, don't bother coming back. We'll, we'll get you on the counter-attack. I think it means that if there's a 30-yard space between you, don't bother tracking back because the distances are too big. But if the distances are okay, 
then by all means go and get the ball back or maybe Ten Hag has Marcus Rashford in this air of Lionel Messi that you just have a free roll there son and the rest of the boys will go and get the ball back for you and look I don't think Marcus Rashford is not, I think he's a brilliant brilliant player one of the best players in the Premier League but to be giving him free license on that left wing and then you're asking Sofran Amrabat to play left back by himself and <laughs> deal with overloads this is this is not you know a tactical setup that I think can win. I think it's a tactical setup that's naive in places, and I think it'll be heavily, heavily criticised. Like if you're sitting there, any right winger in the Premier League, name any right winger in the top ten clubs in the Premier League, they're looking at Amrabat playing left back and they're thinking, "Lovely, what a day for me today." And look, don't get me wrong, I think Amrabat's a brilliant player. I think he's really good. What he did for Morocco in the World Cup, mm. there's no question he's a talented boy, but he's not a left back. So. You know you're at the minute. I know they've injuries. I know this and that, but I don't see that getting any, any better, Rafa. I think if they were to finish, if you were to offer them sixth at the minute, I think they'd rip your hands off. Yeah, and on the same night, Arsenal continue their Champions League campaign. So they're uh, at Lons, who had made a really poor start to the league on season, but they've picked up in the last couple of weeks. However, Arsenal are going to be heavy favourites for that. Um, I was just wondering, Keith, what's your take on the amount of game time he seems to, or Arteta seems to give to Bukayo Saka? Because... He is somebody who seems to be like overplayed and then he picked up a knock there um, at the weekend when there was a possibility he could have been taken off. Now, I think Arteta's argument is he wants to give him enough game, like the top players play pretty much every single minute and it kind of wants him to, I think, to get, be used to playing the full 90. Um, and then when it comes to like a, a crunch game at some point where it gets into 80, 85, 90, that he'll be, uh, you know, ready to go to to make a difference. So where do you where do you land on on that sort of argument in, in regards to Saka and trying to keep him sort of like fit and healthy? Yeah, it, it's a very fine line, Raf. I have to admit, when, when Havertz puts the penalty in and Arsenal go 3 nil up against Bournemouth, I think it was around the, the 55th minute, something like that, I was looking at it thinking, take him off, take him off, because it's just... You can sort of see it developing that the Bournemouth players think like the game's gone. If a, if a ball drops a 50-50 here, it only takes a half split the section to think I'm going to go and do them. And then it might, it's, like, players don't generally think like that. But we, we can't afford to lose Saka. Martinelli's already gone now. We need Saka fit. We have to have Saka fit. And even for England, like, people are asking me, he's, he's so important for Arsenal. He is. Well, he's one of the first names on the team sheet when it comes to England as well. So this is by no means just an Arsenal thing. He's huge for Arsenal. Like I say, probably the fourth name on the team sheet. But the same for, for England. And as a winger, you see how many times he comes in onto that left foot, he passes the ball, and then you get a little wrap around the ankles, a little nick on the Achilles. These things add up. But to be fair, last season, I was saying, I don't fancy Arsenal to, to give us a title race because I thought the likes of Saka, Martinelli, Odegaard having just you know bloodened themselves in the Premier League, playing an awful lot of games now, being heavily relied on. I thought injuries would creep in, but... He's been very, very robust at the minute. Look, Arsenal's injury risk is not great. Uh, they, they obviously one or two gone missing, but look, I think Arsenal are on on a doing really well. But at the again, it's hard to get behind. I know, I know, Manchester City lost the Wolves, but I think it's still very hard to think. You know, the wheels are falling off the Manchester City bus. I don't think anybody's thinking that. It's just there. Uh, I still think there's a growth path, and hopefully, Arsenal can be the best of the rest. And, it's not what anybody wants to hear, but I think that's where we're at. Yeah, and we'll see this weekend coming when City and Arsenal meet and uh, where Arsenal are at in comparison. Obviously, Kevin De Bruyne out injured for the next few months anyway. That might be a little bit of an equaliser. But uh, Chelsea, Paul, I did want to ask you about them. I know you keep a close eye on them and they're hovering sort of <laughs> further down the far away from far away from the top end. But there have been a lot of pieces written around them that 
as much as they're struggling to score goals and they're struggling to put points on the board, that the actual metrics behind how Pochettino has them playing is better than what the results are showing. Well, parts of the performances would certainly suggest that, Rafa. I mean, if you if you look at some of the games, even particularly kind of Bournemouth and Nottingham Forest, the number of times they say entered the final third and just either made the wrong decision or poor execution meant that the the chances were kind of coughed up or, or weren't taken advantage of. And really, a lot of, of what Chelsea have done has been okay and good at times, but they're really struggling to, to score goals. And that has to be a major concern. And Everybody keeps going back to the amount of money they've spent and they still haven't got what seems to be a recognised centre forward. Nicholas Jackson has done well. Um, His, his general play is, is very strong and holding the ball up, he's very sort of awkward it seems to play against and he got a goal last week against Brighton in, in the League Cup so you're kind of hoping that that might change things up the injury to Nkunku hasn't helped and Sterling hasn't really been able to find consistency in front of goal so that will always be the major question around Chelsea is that yes they get themselves into decent positions they play quite you know pretty football on the eye but they're nowhere near ruthless enough when when those opportunities come up so if they are to kind of mount any sort of challenge for a top four, which seems very unlikely, they're going to have to tidy up in that area. And the next two games present decent opportunities of picking up six points. They play Fulham away tonight, and then they play Burnley on Saturday away from home. And maybe that will give them a bit of momentum if they were to win both games heading into the international break. They've still got a, an injury list that is, you know, hard to get your head around with the number of players that they have out injured and, and what's going on on that side of the game. I'm not too sure. But there, there's been elements of the game that have been decent. But now for Pochettino, they keep talking about this project. They've got to have to get points on the board very, very soon. And they can't continue. Like They drew with Bournemouth. They were beaten by Forrest. And then they were beaten by Villa. That doesn't tend to last very long for Chelsea fans. So Pochettino has to, I would say, get six points out of the next two games. Yeah, but the big story, Jim, before we go, was, of mm. course, um, the VAR um, between Spurs and Liverpool. So, of course, Spurs beaten nine-man Liverpool, but the contentious thing was the disallowed goal for Liverpool. And, I mean, I don't have the best eyesight in the world for the, for the replay, and still, I didn't need yeah. any lines drawn on it. It was fairly obvious. No. Now, it seems it was a communication error that yeah. led to it, uh, led yeah. to that issue happening in terms of the VAR room thinking that the goal had been given um, by the referee when, in fact, it had been uh, ruled out on the pitch. Ruled out on the pitch, yeah. So, so obviously, Raph, they, the people behind the scenes in VAR didn't go through the full diligence in this particular decision that was put in front of them on Saturday evening. And a good goal was ruled out. Um, people are angry, you know, because it's not the first time we had this, we had the situation, say, something similar for Wolves uh, at the start of the season against Manchester United. Uh, I don't think, obviously VAR is here to stay, uh, but it's it's there, there, there's, there's been perhaps too many contentious issues around it over the last uh, couple of months. And even going back to the last couple of seasons, I, mean, I even think I was think Sheffield United played Villa uh, when the league came back after COVID and they had, a, I think, what looked like a perfectly good goal. I remember that. It was on the Wednesday. It was yeah, the yeah. Wednesday in June uh, again. But it was frustrating. Uh, it just added to Liverpool's frustration on Saturday evening. In fairness, though, I, I, I think the sendings off were... Correct. I, I particularly think Jota's sending off was correct. There was a people are still debating about Curtis Jones, and then to, for Spurs, then found it desperately hard. They just could not unpick the lock 
that was the Liverpool nine when the Liverpool five or six players across the back there until Joel Matip's uh, unfortunate positioning uh, that saw the ball go into the back of the net. And I was watching it on Sky and Gary Neville was talking about the likes of John Terry and the likes of um, how he would, he in his day was able to, position himself or plant himself in such a way that he could that the ball would go the other way that you know like that there were certain players who had the who had the sense who had just the just that they just that I, I suppose nuance and I suppose footballing intelligence in some ways and that's not being harsh on that team that they can they can arc their body in some way that when the ball comes across that it, it doesn't squirt high into high into the roof of the net. So, uh, but at the end of the day, look, it, it keeps Spurs's run going. Um, they're certainly doing very well under Ange Postecoglou, even though some people think and whether they're right or wrong that that honeymoon may come to an end at a certain point, which it may very well do. Oh, it probably, probably, I'm sure it will. Sorry, Ralph, I was just going to say, it's funny, Jim, that you were saying there that VAR is here to stay. I think if, if you gave me the option of keeping or getting rid of it, I'd get rid of it. Oh, yeah, but I mean, but apparently yeah. at the moment, like it's... it's yeah. You know, yeah, I would keep the goal on technology. technology. I, I like the technology that they used in the World Cup when it came to offsides, and it seems like mm. far more of, of the computers and the intelligence behind it was actually making those decisions. But I, I think it's it's killing the game in in. Mm instances and particularly you know scoring goals and you can't really celebrate and it's killing the atmosphere within grounds i think an element of decisions are always going to be subjective and it should be left to the officials on the pitch the the instance that i mentioned around offside and goal and technology i think that works but i'm not i'm not sure i know huge sums of money into this and it's not going to go anywhere but i'm not sure it's benefiting the game mm. Yeah, unless they go to the the rugby style bunker system, you send you get sent off for ten <laughs> minutes while somebody else <laughs> decides yeah, um, yeah, over a ten minute yeah. spell. Are you actually is is it are you we're going to reduce it down to a yellow card, nothing at all, or you're staying sent off? But uh, just a final point, just on the red card for Curtis Jones, Keith, because it was something being debated by Gary Neville as the match was going on. He didn't think it was a red card because there had been contact with the ball. Then the foot goes into uh, Basuma, but where do you stand stand on that one? Because obviously he didn't mean to do the player, but at the same time, uh, by the letter of the law, where um, where the contact is made, it it seems like it is a red card. Yeah, I, it's a tough one, Matt, because I think if you play the game, you can sort of understand that Curtis Jones, Curtis Jones is trying to get his foot over the ball to trap it and control it and bring it towards him. As it happens, Basuma arrives on the scene and he ends up. Look, he actually makes contact with the ball and his foot rolls over the ball and then he comes into the zoom. So if you come in over the ball with your foot shown, you deserve a red card. The fact that Curtis has come in low, his ball, his foot has come up the ball and then gone into the zoom. I can see why a red card is given that, but it's not a red card to me whatsoever. The, the, the thing that I really didn't like is that when the referee got to the monitor to have a look at it, the still of the impact is there waiting for him to have a look at it. And I think if, if that's the first picture you see when you go there, now, and, and look, if you were to show me, that's still, i say, it's a red card all day long. But when you take everything into, into consideration, the fact that he made contact with the ball force, he studs roll up, and then he hits the zoom, I think it's a yellow card, maybe. You know, I think it's a harsh red card. I have no problem with the Jota one. The first yellow card, when there's a little bit of a coming mm. together with Doggy, I think Jota knows what he's doing there. He tries to play it off like, oh, I didn't, you know, it's, it's, it's a coming together. I think that's a yellow card. That's crazy stuff. He deserves a yellow card. There's not a lot of contact, but you can't do that. You can't go onto your back like that if you're on a yellow card. 
But yeah, I, I, I was a bit of a sympathy for Curtis Jones, and I think if, if there's a, an ex-player referee in that game, I think maybe he sees that a little bit differently. But I have to be, I have to be honest, when, when the referee goes to the monitor and sees that still force, I think there's only ever going to be one outcome. Yeah, no, the judgment is made. And as I think the stats do show, like whenever they do go to the monitor anyway, mm-hmm. generally they'll go with whatever the, the people in the VAR room have kind of uh, suggested that their decision um, is wrong. But anyway, that is it for this week. Obviously, there's the FAI Cup semis on Saturday and Sunday on RT1 and the RT player. And of course, the Champions League uh, group stage match between Manchester United and Galatasaray, which will be live on RT2 and the RT player on Tuesday. But Jim, thanks very much for coming on this no, week. Thank you, thank you Raf. Thanks, lads. Thanks very much.